Good evening, everyone. My name is Arkan Fung, and I am the acting dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome you all to the John F. Kennedy uh, Junior Forum tonight for a fascinating panel on the subject of social media and whether or not it's ruining politics. We had a conversation in the room a few minutes ago, and we decided that it was complex, and that topic merited a discussion of at least an hour and a half, which we're about to uh, engage in. You should know that this event is part of Boston's inaugural Hub Week Showcase. Harvard University is a founding institution of Hub Week, uh, which is a week-long ideas festival celebrating innovation that's happening at the intersection of art and science and technology and public policy across greater Boston. In uh, organizing Hub Week, we're joined by the Boston Globe, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the Massachusetts General Hospital. So be sure to check out the other Hub Week events uh, on the calendar. They're happening all over Harvard, but also at MIT and in Boston, and there's a lot going on. Uh, it opened up at the Fenway uh, this weekend with Michael Sandel asking a bunch of people uh, ethics questions. Uh, we're proud to be hosting a number of Hub Week events here at the Kennedy School on Friday that may be of interest to you. Uh, one of the Hub Week events is Lessons from Boston, Using Technology to Improve City Services, which is presented by the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston and the Taubman Center for State and Local Government. And then we'll have another panel on What Works, Closing the Gender Wage Gap in the City of Boston, presented by the Women and Public Policy Program. And then finally, tomorrow evening in this space, we will be hosting the Tech for Democracy that is hashtag Tech for Democracy Showcase and Challenge presented by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. And it's a kind of contest that people uh, have entered to present some solutions to challenges around the city and beyond. For more information about times and locations for Hub Week events, check out Boston's Hub Week schedule online. But here tonight is our panel, Is Social Media Ruining Politics? The lead for the panel will be Shira Center, who is uh, IO, an IOP Institute of Politics fellow from 2014, and we're delighted to have you back. Uh, she, when in 2014, she led a study group on gender, journalism, and the midterm elections, and she will be able to revisit that topic in the general elections very soon. She is the political editor, uh, a political editor at the Boston Globe, where she coordinates the newspaper's coverage of New the New Hampshire primary and the 2016 presidential race. She also works on the Globe's weekly section on politics, Capital, which publishes Friday in print and throughout the week online. Previously, Shira served as the politics editor for Roll Call, and she's, uh, you can see her on many different cable news stations on the weekends and otherwise. She uses social media to enhance and promote work across all these platforms, so I guess she has a bias in this particular conversation, but we'll find out about that in a moment after she introduces the rest of the panel and moderates. Thank you very much. Well, I believe, um, oh, it's a little loud. Uh, she said, thank you so much for having us here today. I think this is gonna be a really great panel, and obviously Hub Week has been fantastic so far. Uh, as I said, I am Shira Center, and I'll be leading our discussion today. And instead of um, me introducing uh, all of you guys, why don't we go through and just give about two minutes of our background. Nick, would you like to go first? Sure, I'm Nick Carr. I write about technology and culture. Um, I've written a few books, most recently one called The Glass Cage, which is about automation and how it's taking over our 
our jobs and our souls sometimes. And before that, a book called The Shallows, which looked at how the internet and being constantly connected, constantly connected is influencing the way we think. And many years ago, I was uh, an editor at the Harvard Business Review, so. Mindy? Hi, I'm Mindy Finn. Um, I got my start in politics about 12 years ago um, and kind of made by accident fell into new media, which most people um, didn't know what that was. But I was young and coming out of college and had a little bit of experience in HTML and Photoshop. And, and people said, here, do this job um, in addition to your regular work on Capitol Hill. Um, and that led me to run digital media programs for a presidential campaign, for the Republican National Committee, um, to open a consulting firm where I worked with many different candidates and advocacy groups in that area, um, and then ultimately to a job uh, at Twitter as one of their first DC staffers leading partnerships for politics and advocacy. So social media has been a big part of my life um, in politics even before it was really considered social media, um, when it was blogs and other platforms, um, and since I think many of you, back when many of you were in, in middle school, um, today I'm a, a consultant, I still do some political consulting um, and also run a group called Empowered Women to inspire, educate, and give voice to a new generation of American women um, to bring them together and strengthen their impact on civic culture. Thanks, um, well, my name is John Delavolpe and I, I am the Director of Polling here at the Institute of Politics. For the past 15 years, 27 or 28 different semesters, I've led a study group of undergraduates here studying the world's largest generation, the millennial generation. And of course, you can't study the millennial generation without um, engaging in things related to social media. So uh, that's a major focus of what, we're, what, we're, what we were about. Uh, we conduct uh, two surveys a year, 5,000 individuals total, and over the course of the last several years, dozens and dozens of focus groups with young people across the country. In addition to that, I often talk about how I'm embedded with millennials on campus, at home, and I have a company called Social Sphere, which is headquartered down the street. The objective of Social Sphere is to use social media to identify, empower, and ask for more from our clients' most passionate constituents, oftentimes using social media. So Great. thanks for having me. Terrific. Let's give a warm welcome to our panelists. So I'm going to kick it off with, I think, the most burning uh, question on all of our minds in terms of social media. Donald Trump, good, bad, or as he might say, huge or huge with social media. Which one? Well, I think, I think he's a good case study in, in, in what works on social media um, in politics as, as elsewhere. Uh, he's, in the TV age, politicians, candidates kind of wanted to present themselves as these stable images. They wanted to have a coherent image out there. Uh, and so they tend to repeat the same thing over and over again. And I have to say that the, the image may have been completely artificial or partially artificial, but nevertheless, that was your goal. That doesn't seem to be the goal with social media because the, the, what you want to do is grab people's attention when they're, when they're faced this swirl of information coming through social media. And it turns out Trump is very good at doing that, at blasting out these messages that you know love him or hate him suddenly make you stop and say, I can't believe he said that. And, and that seems to work and, and keep the focus on him uh, through social media. And then that, that kind of escalates up through the rest of the media. So he sets, he's often setting the agenda through these messages he's, he's shooting out on Twitter or whatever. And then the rest of the media covers it. 
And it's a very different dynamic, I think, than we've seen before. Huge, and would he be the front runner today if it were not for Twitter? <laughs> um, I think huge. Um, it's the <laughs> social media demands a certain authenticity. That's the best way to use the platform, um, and that's one of Trump's greatest strengths. So, and and he's playing into it perfectly. Mm -hmm. The when I go back to 2011, when I first started at Twitter, and a lot of my job was actually helping to train candidates. Um, just you know, across the board, what are best practices for Twitter? How can you best use the platform? It was authenticity, show behind the scenes, give them, um, make them feel like they are the um, most important stakeholders in the campaign, you know, your Twitter audience, and also instant response. And what we see, I mean, even today, um, when Kevin McCarthy dropped out of uh, the race for speaker, Trump's there with a response you know, within minutes. Um, and it's not, you can tell it's not, I mean, it might be carefully scripted, but if it is, they were able to, he was able to do that quite quickly. Um, so I think, I think huge. Um, whether he'd be the front runner without Twitter, uh, quite possibly, because he was already a TV celebrity, mm -hmm. um, and TV knows he gets great ratings, and so they've been really quick to want to, to feature him. In fact, I think that um, what's contributing to his decline in the polls, there are a few things, but one of those things is he was hyper-covered for so many weeks, and there's only so long that's sustainable, and media's really pulled back on it. John, good, bad, or huge? Huge. And <laughs> what do you think is lasting, Donald Trump's lasting effect uh, in terms of his use of social media on this election cycle will be? So I think it's all of the above based on kind of from where you sit, right? So he's, um, I think it's good because he's innovated, right? And in a moment, I have an example of something that it's the first time I've ever seen a candidate create short 15 second little mini ads on Instagram. So good because I think he's shown the power of what somebody can do and actually engage people. Now whether he's engaging people in terms of moving the country forward, making America great again as compared to insults to be determined, right? Certainly I think he could be far more kind of positive in terms of his tone and in capturing this moment to engage voters in a civil discussion. So I think that's bad. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's huge because I'm not sure he would be you know, we would be discussing him today if it weren't for his use of Twitter and, uh, and Instagram. Yeah, um, so this is an example John has pulled from Instagram. Can we uh, let her roll? Having trouble sleeping at night? Too much energy? Need some low energy? You may have an HSA in some companies, some companies don't. But I think the norm ought to be, Jen, for all your sleeping needs. <laughs> right? It's, it's Good, because I never would have thought of a 15-second Instagram spot, right? Bad, because if I were advising a campaign, I would use that time to say, give me your ideas, right, in terms of what we need to move the country forward, rather than just going negative against Bush. Do you have a reaction to it? Political tactics, too. I mean, he's, it's a really a reordering and a, and a shift of how you run a campaign, because typically, you know, when I've been on campaigns, the discussion is when to go negative and what is that right moment. And there hasn't been that kind of calibration. In the they recognize that you don't wait. And, and some criticisms of Mitt Romney back in 2012 and other candidates, and many uh, quite often when they lose, is they waited too long. He's not waiting at all. Um, and he no. <laughs> so, anything you want to add to that? Next? No, I, I think that's right. I, I think if you look at Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, they're still kind of playing by the old rules and are very nervous about going negative, very nervous about saying anything that's going to blow up into a, a TV controversy, you know, be accused of having, of, of, of having, you know, made a gaffe. 
Trump lives on making gaffes. I, I mean, things that would have been defined as gaffes uh, in the, any election previously, for him, just seems to you know, put more fuel in his tank. Right, well said. Um, so as reporters, when we cover campaigns, you know, we monitor the role of television quite a bit, how much money a candidate is spending on TV, usually shows how strong their campaign is, how much money they're bringing in. So for years and years, decades, we've, we've thought of television as the dominant force of media in campaigns. Is that still the case and for how long and when will social media or, or digital media completely overtake that? Let's well, I, I, think, I think this year, the 2016 campaign is really the first when we're seeing social media at a mature level begin to shape the mm -hmm. campaign. So, you know, 2008, I think, was called or the, the Facebook campaign yeah. because, because Obama organized people on Facebook, younger people mainly, and got a lot of contributions. But, but it didn't shape the political discourse and the kind of dynamics of the campaign. I think this is the first year we're seeing how campaigns change when social media does often drive the discussion. So that doesn't mean TV's going away or radio's going away or the press is going away. Uh, it does mean that often all those other media are following what's going on on social media. So even if a person isn't following the campaign through Twitter or something, what they're seeing through TV and other, and other media may be very heavily, heavily influenced by what's going on in social media. Mindy? There's a mistake often made by campaigns and then also by many of those who cover the campaigns that where the most money goes means that's the most important aspect. Mm. And most of the money goes to TV because it's the most expensive. Um, digital advertising has um, increasing, not only increasing in its share of the budget, but it's increasing in cost as demand rises. But TV is still incredibly expensive. Um, there's reports, you dig into it, about the, the money that super PACs are spending on television because there's so much competition. So um, because of that, um, I, I think it will still tend to dominate the narrative. I don't think, you know, maybe by next year when we're a few months out, um, there will be more coverage of online advertising in the same way there is television. But it's, it's also, TV is, more, is a more regulated market. Um, there's more disclosure of where people are buying. The, Internet landscape is gelling, and there's um, you know more demand side buying. I'm kind of getting into the wonky terms where people are buying through one platform, but it's still um, the wild, wild west a bit in terms of tracking who is buying where, and because of that, it's much easier for reporters to be able to make, write that TV story than to write that social media story. This is true. I think that the one thing to add to that is that uh, video and television is, is still you know, a primary way to tell a story, the compelling story. Um, but I think it's been 10 years since, since um, we saw the dramatic change from television to other kinds of um, advertising advocacy in Massachusetts. Deval Patrick, who got elected governor in 2006, now a decade ago, went from third place to first place without a single TV ad, without a single TV ad. Now, he, he held on to that lead with TV, but what he did was he had his two consultants, David Puff and David Oxerod, create a beautiful 30-second spot it essentially went out to his list before Twitter even existed, his list of email addresses said, I don't have enough money to put this on TV. Can you send this to friends and family? Right? That with some banner ads that led people to that went from third place to first place against two people who were far um, better known and had more money in their accounts. So the tools are there. It's for the campaigns, the candidates to kind of empower them and, to, and kind of engage with them on their own terms. 
Uh, Nick, you mentioned 2008 is the Facebook election, at least from my perspective, uh, 2012 was the Twitter election. Uh, 2016, what's that gonna be? That's opposite way. John, what do you think? Um, well, uh, a lot of folks think that could be the Snapchat election, right? What Snapchat is doing in terms of <laughs> further democratizing the role of media in some way, right? In, in, in terms of um, not having to wait for the 24-hour news cycle actually on, on cable, but to see it comes from the perspective of their friends, mm -hmm. right? We see that you know a third or so from our surveys here at Harvard among millennials, about a third or so of, of voters are active uh, engaging with, with Snapchat. And when you look at the demographics of Snapchat versus Twitter versus Instagram, they're quite different. So it'd be interesting to see the way in which each of these campaigns, we saw a snippet earlier, each of these campaigns kind of identifies um, which channel that they want to, and don't forget Pinterest as well. So I'm thrilled to say that you thought 2012 was the Twitter election because that was one of our goals when I worked at Twitter was that we want the story after the election to be this was the Twitter election. Um, so that's success. Um, and I'm sure Snapchat is sitting there, um, our friends at Snapchat, um, sitting back and saying we would love that to be the story for 2016. Um, and it very well could be, but I actually don't think that tells the whole story. I think it, it sounds sexier, but um, the more accurate is that it's finally the mobile election um, of people engaging with the campaigns via mobile. I think that's right. I, I mean, I think it's, it's all of social media now. Um, but I do think, I do think snap, calling it the Snapchat election makes sense, at least metaphorically, because what we see with, with Trump and, and others is that a good strategy is kind of to model your personality on, on the way Snapchat works and to kind of burst into people's consciousness you know, at regular intervals, but not say anything so deep or complicated that it requires people to actually pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, if you model yourself on, on, on Snapchat, that might be a pretty good media strategy this year. Well, that's good news for Rand Paul, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm just kind of curious, uh, raise of hands, how many people in the audience have their own Twitter account? Facebook account? Snapchat account? Don't be shy. It's <laughs> interesting. Um, so Nick, you've specialized in how the internet changes our behavior. I've, you know, on Facebook, I think we all have friends who pick and choose what they post based on their own political beliefs. We all have that uncle. Um, by only reading what we choose and having that option, is it possible where many people are kind of hardwiring their brains to only believe certain things? And what are some of the long-term effects of this? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I do think, and this isn't something new with the internet or with social media, but I think what we're seeing is a continuation of the story of the polarization of politics in the country. Um, where people, the, the, the hope for the internet was you put all this information out there, make it easily available, and people will go out and, and, and sample all sorts of different opinions and look for, uh, look for thoughts that contradict their own. What we're seeing, that what really happens is people go out and gather information that confirms their existing biases, their existing political beliefs. And what we know from the psych psychological studies is the more information you can gather that supports your pre-existing beliefs, the more extreme those beliefs tend to get. Um, so I think, I think, as I said, it didn't start with the internet or with social media, but I think it's, it's probably going to end up being a, more of a polarizing force than what we w originally believed or hoped, which is that it would, it would encourage people to expose themselves to a wide range of viewpoints. So is this, a, this strikes me as probably not necessarily the most productive thing for, let's say, constructive political discourse, right? Would you, 
agree or disagree with that, Mindy? I generally agree, but I think that the answer of whether it's forcing polarization in a way we didn't see before, it's, a, there's a, it's complex. And it really depends because it's quite true that people can much more easily siphon themselves off and only go after information that reinforce their own bias. But on the other hand, where in the past you were limited in the, the people who influenced you were in your just your geographic region. Now those that people are connected to are cross geography and time and space. And so you're more likely to be exposed to, you know, and people are also moving. Um, so they're more mobile and they're not necessarily staying where they grew up. And so you're more likely to be exposed to a diversity of views and opinions. And I actually think that's what's driving the unpredictability of the electorate. I mean, we have better tools for measuring and understanding, but where you used to, if you ran a political campaign, you could base your strategy around geographic targeting because people in geographic areas are more likely to behave similarly. Uh, social media has absolutely disrupted that. Now, it also, um, in certain you know, platforms, especially Twitter, it allows people to post anonymously, and it does really, um, help foster this kind of knee-jerk reaction and consuming things in instant bites and not necessarily looking at the context. And, and when in that instant reaction and people being just very quick to um, respond emotionally without being thoughtful, I don't think that's constructive for our discourse. I, I think I'll add a couple of points. One is I think there's a different psychology to why an individual gets on Twitter versus Facebook versus some of these other channels. Part one, but the, the thing that I'm most focused on in terms of the millennial generation, I'm not sure that their opinions are so um, polarized when they become of voting age for the first time, right? In other words, those who are on Twitter are trying to, try to understand kind of the way, the way in which the world operates. They're choosing to share things about themselves that they care about. Oftentimes it's related to kind of their life as a student or their, kind of their dreams or what they share. In other words, they are laying seeds every single day, millions of them, saying the things that they care about. Not you know, right wing or left wing, but things that they care about. Which is an opportunity for candidates and elected officials and members of government from both sides of the aisle to engage with them, to dig a little bit deeper, okay? And to say, tell me about your perspective, you know, kind of on this issue, and they don't. So I think the challenge isn't necessarily kind of from the citizen's point of view, the challenge is, from kind of those who hold the power to not engage. And we, there are a handful of examples. You know, Cory Booker from New Jersey does it as well as anybody in any industry around the world. But unfortunately, you know, better than I do, those examples are probably few and far between. Uh, John, as part of your research, you work with students a lot, obviously, and you pull um, millennials uh, frequently. Um, can you show us, uh, I think you have some slides to show us some positive and neg negative examples of social media engagement with this demographic and others? Yeah, the, well, the very first thing, let me just give you just the one little bit of background though, but the reason that this poll started back in 2000 was a, a couple of uh, young folks who were part of the IOP, Trevor, Trevor and Aaron, they were concerned about this disconnect between service and voting, right? Mm -hmm. They saw that all of their friends on this campus and campuses and high schools around the country Seemed, so, so, seemed very interesting giving back through service, but they didn't see kind of the connection to voting. And they, students thought, wouldn't it be easier and faster if they'd served as well as voted? So the idea is, what we've learned is, young people are not apathetic, they're trying to engage. And we have a good and a bad example up here of that. One of which, um, 
was from uh, Senator Booker from New Jersey, as I mentioned, engaging with a citizen about um, their there point of view related to uh, gun control legislation. Yeah. It's behind me. Okay, so you can see. Uh, it's at the front. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, a, a constituent of New Jersey said, "Dear Cory Booker, what is common sense gun legislation?" Democrats discuss it like it's self-evident what what good um, hashtag gun control is. So Senator Booker actually went through four or five tweets talking about his perspective on what his definition of good gun control legislation is, right? And then you can see 82 tweets, 147 favorites, thousands of people engaged on a positive policy um, remark that wouldn't happen otherwise. And again, it's just a moment, but now there's a connection there, okay? There's a connection between the senator and Carl, and then there's obviously more information he can find as well. That's one example, and there's another example of doing it the opposite way, which is what the Trump campaign tends to do. They tend to engage with folks, but rather than engaging on positive remarks, they tend to engage on negative things, right? You can see, to your point, that there's a lot of partisanship there. Um, he's tweeting somebody who has 42 followers or so, but he's tweeting something that's very negative regarding the interview style of, of Cuomo on TV, right? Pathetic interview as usual. So Trump is engaging with citizens, but not in a dialogue, more in, in kind of, kind of vitriol. He's got a lot more retweeted. He did. He's got a very, very passionate tweet. I think it was the all caps. Right? I think that's what did it. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of examples, I was wondering if you two wouldn't mind sharing uh, a really effective way you've seen a presidential campaign use social media to reach voters, and maybe also a really ineffective way, if you have one on your mind. Yeah. Mindy? Ineffective, and I don't, and less effective, and I don't mean to pick on him, but there was a moment a few months back, and I don't remember what the exact issue was, but Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton um, campaigns got into a bit of a Twitter right. spat, um, and I, I don't think, I, it seems like the reasoning might have been behind that to say, oh, we, we're embracing the new media and where political discourse happens, and this is where you know political engagement happens, and by Jeb rising up and um, and debating Hillary, they were kind of maybe trying to, well, she was already the presumptive nominee and he's kind of really stepping into that role of presumptive nominee. Again, this is several months back, even before Trump's rise. Um, and I think they both ended up looking really childish. So that was one of the poorer examples I've seen in the election cycle. I think, was it the comment he made in New Hampshire that people needed to work harder, right? And then she jumped on it and he, that it maybe something like that, yeah. But interesting, yeah. Sanders has been, Bernie Sanders has been pretty effective in reaching his audience and expanding his audience through, through, you know, his posts on Facebook, for instance, where he builds them around textual statements that, that, that seem to have a certain degree of, uh, of heft and seem to, seem to allow him to rise above the fray. Um, I think, you know, you know, the problem with talking about what's effective and not is, is we can go with, John's definition, which is what's what helps political discourse, but that might not actually be what's politically efficacious. And so, so I think when Trump, you know, does post the post kind of offensive or, or um, uh, rabble rousing kind of tweets, it's actually been very effective for him. You can you can certainly argue that it's not raising political discourse uh, in any way, but. That seems to be what works on social media, where, where you know, we have to remember that 
the political stream of information is just one stream among all sorts of streams, social streams and stuff that people are looking at, and you really have to do something to stand out and to grab people's attention and to make them say, oh, I better stop and, and look at this. And, and so in some ways, you know, it might be the worst strategy to try to elevate discourse if you're getting rewarded for you know, just, just kind of grabbing people's attention by saying striking or even outrageous things. Well, assuming, and maybe this is too far an assumption, that everyone on the stage and somehow believes in getting more people engaged in politics and political discourse, even myself, I mean, we've talked about how these mediums and social media can be effective for candidates, but what is the most effective medium for productive political discourse right now? Can you even pick a single medium? Mindy? Media. No, I don't think you can, uh, I mean, I don't think you can pick a single media. Um, I think what's so fascinating is that campaigns are, um, are playing in so many different fields. So we're talking about social media here, but you also have many candidates who are posting on Medium and turning to Medium to state their case. Um, if people know what that is, a publishing platform um, where they can have kind of more longer form conversations. The Fiorina campaign has done that uh, quite well, for example. Uh, when she was maybe going to get shut out of the second debate, they really turned to that platform. So I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think the jury's out about which is most effective. I think what many of the candidates are choosing to do, which I would endorse, um, is you don't want to be too spread too thin because you may be not effect, you know, ineffective everywhere. But understanding that the there's a fractured media landscape. Um, if you want to get as many people engaged as possible and certainly persuade and get your message out. Uh, to all your, the constituencies that you need to win, you're not gonna be able to depend on a single platform. You're, you're gonna need to play on, on many different platforms and obviously they do earned media and they'll do, they'll do paid media as well. John, in some of the work you've done with students, have you seen uh, one medium more than the others where students appear to have a more, or millennials have a more productive political conversation? I think um, we recently held a town meeting of uh, 57 or so students across a couple dozen colleges and we're asking these kinds of questions and to them it's whatever the candidate chooses to engage I'll find it okay mm -hmm. so it's not like you need to find me only on Facebook or Twitter the, the lesson that they were the because what they were telling us was that just find something that you're comfortable with and use it okay but they wanted the candidates to use it right mm -hmm. that's like what you know what Trump we know you know that's Trump right and we know when Sanders tweets something that's usually Sanders, right? But that's what students were looking for um, and young people. They just wanted for the, the candidates to use it the way in which they do, right? And not just another version of a stale press release that they could serve off of any, any other kind of wire service. Um, this is a question I personally find very interesting in terms of social media usage. Uh, do different genders use social media differently? Um, Mindy, do you wanna start with that one? Yeah, well, the data shows that um, uh, both on Twitter and Facebook, there's often a slight tilt um, to women using those. Um, there's certainly different demographic groups um, that heavily skew um, or over-index on Twitter, for example. Um, and then there's platforms like Pinterest, um, yeah. you know, which isn't used necessarily, isn't seen as much a, a powerful political tool, although the Hillary Clinton campaigns used it, other candidates do, and it heavily skews female. Uh, so that's quite interesting. Um, LinkedIn, for example, which some campaigns, they will, they will use it. Um, it's not so much a gender difference, but there's an age gap. It's the only one that 
um, really over indexes for those who are above 29 years old. John? We've seen, we, we ask that series of questions every semester and our information is available online and you're right. So uh, Pinterest over like 4X, you know, for women, also for conservatives and Southerners on Pinterest. Um, oh. We used to see a fairly decent divide among African-Americans on Twitter, but now it's closing. It looks more representative of, of America. But um, so there are some, some differences based on kind of what, what platform. But again, everybody is, can be found if they want to be found. And that said, I still believe people are raising their hands wanting to, to be engaged. I will say though, some of the work that we're doing with Facebook, you can see that some people tend to like comments more, other people tend to post more. So again, Facebook is now opening up their data feed so we can learn a little bit more about what folks are doing, but there'll be a lot more information around in political intensity, I think, coming from that data set in the coming it, months. Do we have any data yet on the gender divide between people who post more versus like more? It I think it depends on subject. I think it depends on subject. I think you'll see that um, I, we're looking at some sports and some other kind of events, but I think we should stay tuned for that. Oh, interesting. Um, Nicholas, you've done uh, a lot of work in terms of the historical context of how new technology changes the way we think about politics. Uh, I always remember the lesson from my grade school history class about the Nixon-Kennedy debate, right? And this is a debate where people thought if they listened on the radio that Nixon won, if they watched it on TV, John Kennedy's so handsome, and I'm not just saying that because we're in this building, um, <laughs> that, he, uh, that he, won the uh, he won the debate. And it was the symbol of kind of the movement of politics towards maybe a more superficial way. Are we again going through one of those transitions right now? And would you say it's a, tr a transition to becoming more superficial politics, or is this just part of historical progression? I think it's definitely part of a historical progression. And I think you can e actually kind of trace it out after the last 100 years. I'd argue that, that what we're seeing this year, and as I mentioned, I think this is the first year that social media is popular enough and mature enough to really influence the campaign, is probably the third big media shift in elections and campaigning. Uh, back, first came radio, which, which hit its point of maturity in the 1924 race, I think, where Calvin Coolidge won re-election. And, and radio was very interesting because suddenly candidates didn't have bodies. And they, they just spoke with their voice. Uh, and they weren't speaking at big you know, fairgrounds, but they, they, were, they came into people's houses through these radios. And suddenly you had to have this kind of intimate conversation with voters, and, and a lot of candidates couldn't make that transition. You know, we had people like Franklin Roosevelt with his fireside chats who was ideally suited to it. And then in 1960, we had, as you said, uh, the introduction really of TV as the main force, main media force, and, and, and it was perfectly encapsulated in the debate between uh, Kennedy and Nixon, where Nixon was totally oblivious to the fact that he was sweating and looked horrible on TV, and you know, I think he thought he had won and, and obviously didn't. And, and I think TV, in one sense, it gave, their, gave candidates their bodies back. You were in front of everybody, but it, it turned them into these two-dimensional images, put a lot more uh, emphasis on being very conservative and how you presented yourself, being very nervous about causing a, a, any kind of big um, controversy. And now I think this is the third big change. And, and it's not that radio or TV or print have gone away, but but social media is the new thing in the mix. And I think in some ways it, it, it no longer emphasizes the image of a candidate. It puts much more emphasis on, on personality. Um, and you want a personality that, that, that does grab attention on, on social media. And you want to be somebody who says something new 
all the time, rather than saying something repeating the same thing over and over again. That works on TV, where you kind of have, have a voter's attention captured. You don't have that on, on social media, so saying the same thing over and over again, and I think we see you know, some of the traditional candidates like Hillary Clinton do that on social media, and it just kind of comes off dull. So, so, so I think what we're gonna see is that candidates either have to adapt, or politicians have to adapt to this new media, or a new generation of politicians will come in who are adept at it. We'll see, see the same kind of upheaval we saw with radio and TV. Um, and we're getting some hints of how that's gonna play out, but it's gonna be very interesting next year and in future elections as well. So it is interesting because in many ways it changed who would run for office, you know, television and radio, and now social media. I mean, what kind of generation of politicians do you think we'll have as a product of a social media dominated environment? I think we'll have people who are, are a bit more freewheeling. Um, that would be fun for us. It would be fun, and, and there's a, there can be a good side to it and there can be a bad side to it because I think also social media, and again, whether you look at politics or elsewhere, rewards with its attention kind of very visceral, emotional messages. Um, uh, that's what cuts through the chatter and cuts through the noise. And the danger there, I mean, that can be good because it can bring people into the political process. They can really relate to it. But the danger is emotionalism is always dangerous in politics because it can breed a kind of cult of personality around a candidate. Um, so it's, it's there, there's a danger, a, a risk here that, that, that will just get more kind of superficial and emotional in the messages um, in, in, in the level of political discourse, which wasn't great to begin with, will we'll actually come down a little lower. Uh, Mindy, John, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, there absolutely is a new paradigm because of social media. Um, I think of it a little bit differently, though, than it fostering the cult of personality. I think it does do that, and we are seeing that with, with Trump and you know, the fact that a Trump would run. Um, but I'm gonna do something really dangerous um, in this kind of election cycle, which is make a prediction. Um, and I don't think that Trump will ultimately be the next president. And so the, um, it's really then a question of, That's yeah. That's very brave, Mindy. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, he's taken off, but is he ultimately successful? You know, there's a lot of energy around his campaign, but does he ultimately become president? Or is it somebody else who is able to thread the needle between being presidential, kind of more conservative, as Nick would talk about, in their presence, um, and, and have a certain stature, but also show personality. Um, enough personality that people don't think they're wooden. And, and I actually think it will be the latter, but the, the new paradigm of social media, what it's really done in, in terms of, um, and this has had an impact on who decides to run, is it's, it's more participatory. It's more democratic, small d, where everybody is part of the process in a way that they haven't been um, in a long time and they feel dominion over that process and it's emboldened, it's empowered people with information um, and it's given them a power to create uh, support and get their message out um, quite quickly and raise money quite quickly. And so that is real, this is where I know the title of this session is social media ruining politics. I think when we see things as chaotic and messy as they are, we can tend to think yes, absolutely on that question. But where I think the answer is no, that in some ways it's strengthened it, but we're kind of, we're such at the beginning of the shift in paradigm that it hasn't all settled out. 
um, is it's given, like look at the you know, Republican debate stage or even the Democratic field you know, right now with Bernie. Um, and you know, it's, it's big and it's diverse and it's messy because it's hard to know, you know who is up and who's down what day and who believes what. Um, and you know, some people might say it would be better if we could like wrap it in a neat package, but that's democracy. Democracy is supposed to fuel the ability for people, no matter who you are and where you come from, to have the ability to run for president. And before the social media era, we were really getting away from that, and it's uh, facilitating it in a way that I actually think is quite healthy. Yeah, speaking to the title of this panel, mm -hmm. is social media ruining politics? I think, um, I think the people who are using social media are ruining politics. Oh. Right? Um, unfortunately. Nuance. Um, because the w I, I just believe that, um, a, a, a couple of things. I don't think it has to be that way, right? I know for a fact if uh, some candidate says, I'm gonna use Twitter tonight and say, I'm gonna host a community meeting in Boston to talk about what's working in the city, okay? That you would have 100 if not 1,000 new people show up to have a conversation about that. And that's the use of social media in the best way. And I can guarantee you that in that room you'd have an 18-year-old, you have an 80-year-old, a lot of people in between, want to participate in solving problems. Now, that's the first step in building trust within the system. Then they are connected with somebody who actually cares. They'll follow that person. And that's the way for social media to save politics, okay? But for whatever reason, um, and it's difficult, folks haven't figured out how to best use that, even though Obama did that beautifully eight years ago, right? Um, and part of it, I think, is that the But folks if I can just pause, what's please, interesting please, is yeah. you, when we talk about social discourse, that discourse that you talk about is still in person. It is at the town hall meeting. It's not, it's not necessarily on social media. That's okay, but you're using social media as one tool to bring people together. And for, for and those folks, like the, the, the example we used in New Jersey, if you can't make that town meeting, then you can have an, an engagement with, with somebody. The, the common problem, whether it's millennials or any other generation, is a lack of faith and lack of trust in the system. And finally, we have a tool, as you said, that's participatory and, and democratizing that folks aren't using in that way all the time. And I believe that if you build trust, create a relationship, that will lead to success in the ballot box. And I think there are enough examples um, to get there. The problem, though, is that too many of us who are kind of consultants and strategists and communications folks are used to talking to people through the use of a 30 second spot or 15 second spot or whatever. And it's a very different mentality on social media. You have to be prepared to kind of engage and listen and respond. It shows your true self. As Nick said, it's your true personality. Um, in a way in which emails are a true personality before you know they're gonna be public, right? And there were some charming things about those emails, right? There were some charming things about those and other emails. It, it gives you a window into the personality a lot more than a tweet or a Facebook post does if it's heavily edited by some campaign consultant. Uh, Nick, I'm gonna ask you one more question, but then we will go to all of your questions. So if you have one, uh, please go ahead and line up at any one of the four mics distributed around the room for our panelists. Um, Nick, I'd also like you to answer the title of this panel, which is, is social media ruining politics? That would imply that politics was in some pure state before and is now ruined, so, I, so, so no, I, I mean, but I, I don't think it's elevating politics. I, I, I mean, I think, I think the good news is that it can 
draw people who are feeling disenfranchised and disengaged, it can draw them into the political process. I mean, if you're not watching news on TV or listening to it on radio or reading papers, then you want political discourse to go to social media. You want it to be where people can have the opportunity to get involved. But I worry that, that ultimately it's making that discourse more superficial rather than richer. And it's giving, it's giving a lot of people, I fear, an illusion of participation where they think, oh, if I retweet something, I'm participating. If I like something or heart something on Instagram or something, I'm participating. But what it's not doing is drawing people into a thoughtful engagement with policy issues and, and candidates. Um, and instead, it's, 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 it is repackaging political conversation as streams of superficial tweets or, or Facebook messages. And, and you, can, you would hope that people would go beyond that and use that as the entree into some deeper engagement. And some people will, but I don't think most people will. Um, we will now go to your questions. Just a quick reminder, and as an editor, this is very near and dear to my heart. Your question should have a question mark at the end of it. It should be an actual question. So uh, let's make sure we adhere to that. Uh, let's start uh, left, and then we'll go right like a Z. How about that? Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak with us this evening. My question is actually mainly directed at John, although I'd be interested in hearing both of your perspectives as well. In terms of using social media to save politics, the example you gave seemed to me to really be more possible at a state or a local level as opposed to a national one. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, do you see the same effects that you spoke about social media having on politics occurring at the state and local level? Is there any sort of difference? And might it be more possible for social media to save politics at the state and local level as opposed to the federal one? Um, well, often, oftentimes, you know, um, the best ideas come, right, from the, from the local cities and towns across America, which are then, um, then if they work, they get kind of scooped up by, by candidates for president. But I think it works everywhere. I think for a candidate to start a conversation about poverty on Twitter, you know, national conversation that maybe starts on Twitter and ends somewhere else would be helpful at any level at any level, and, and you know, we've engaged in similar conversations with school teachers across America on issues related to education and poverty and other things, so I'm sure it can work. The question of which candidate kind of wants to, wants to do the effort, wants to do the hard work to get there, right? Because it takes effort to read through people's responses, right, and to, and to kind of engage with people who have a good idea, and to take those ideas and kind of develop them into kind of a policy initiative that might work. It's different, it's hard, but I think it's worth it because I think you get better ideas and you have more engaged citizenry. And if you do that, then it also helps in the ballot booth, in my opinion. Thank you. Either of you? Is that on? Okay. Yep. Hi, uh, my name is Caroline. I'm a sophomore in the college. Thanks for being here. Um, my question is sort of getting at something that Nick, you mentioned. Um, to what extent do you all think that political discourse moving to a social media website actually encourages people to get involved and care about issues? Um, we all have that one uncle that posts all their statuses on Facebook. So I'm wondering if you, if you think that it's actually encouraging people to care about the issues or the people who might not necessarily agree feel more disenfranchised and less a part of what's going on. You know, I think it's I think it's a good medium for for galvanizing attention and in 
getting people involved in thinking about it, an issue. Whether it's a good medium for encouraging sustained engagement with an issue or with the process in general, I'm more dubious about that. What, what we often see with the dynamic of social media is things burst, things become very, very important for a day and two days and then they disappear and, and then we wait and something else comes ver becomes very, very important. So, I mean, certainly for some people, I think the, the following something on social media will be the spur that gets them deeply involved. But that's counterbalanced by this, this churn of our attention as kind of the new thing comes up and pushes aside something else. Um, and, and I think for most people, it will create bursts of participation and attentiveness, but probably won't create the kind of sustained engagement that actually leads to changes that they might want. social media platforms are really well positioned to be great for discourse. There's not a lot of really good discourse happening um, on any of them. They allow people to get kind of instant access to um, politicians are thinking or saying. Sometimes the Cory Booker example is an exception in that he does engage quite a bit with constituents. Um, but even Twitter is somewhat lacking. And there's, you know, there's new platforms kind of every couple years that rise up that say they're going to address this problem. And we haven't talked about this yet on the panel, but what quite concerns me, and, and even going to um, John's idea, is that you'll hear from members on Capitol Hill now, so members of Congress, that they've stopped doing town halls because they'd rather just do it through social media because it's a lot easier. And it's actually a lot more controlled. They'll do Q&As on Facebook and they can decide what questions they wanna take and people might yell at them, um, but there's a way to shut it down um, that's different than if you were at a town hall meeting and there's a disturbance. And so I think that aspect's quite concerning. So I don't think we're quite yet, there yet in terms of a social media platform being great for discourse. Okay. Uh, and just a reminder, when you do ask your question, uh, don't forget to state your name and your affiliation with the college or with Harvard if you have one up there, purple shirt. Uh, my name is Jack and I'm a freshman in the college. My question is how can candidates appear more authentic even when all their messages, tweets, and Facebook posts are crafted well ahead of time? Good, very good question. Um, let's see, Mindy, you've worked a yeah. little bit directly with candidates. Why don't you talk about that? Well, I think they would be used. I mean, when they're not crafted well ahead of time, um, I, mean, I would I would guard against doing that. I don't think that's a good use of of the platform um, and kind of the culture of a platform, particularly a Twitter, where it's an instant response. You know, what I think you've seen campaigns do to try to um, shield the candidate a little bit from making a gaffe or a mistake is they have a lot, you know, staffers are empowered, sometimes all their, you know, many, many staff um, to be tweeting during debates, to commentary and that type of thing. And that is, that's a departure. I mean, going back 10 years, even 10, eight years ago, um, there would have been only a few people within a campaign who were empowered to actually speak on behalf of the campaign. Now they have, a, you know, a whole army doing so on Twitter. But I would really guard against, I mean, there were some stories out of the 2012 election about Mitt Romney's campaign, a tweet going through 22 approvals. You know, they dispute that. You know, there's different stories, um, sides of that story. But, you know, if that's the case or when that is the case, um, that doesn't allow a candidate to, to really realize the power of a social media. Do either of you have an example or a thought on who is a really, actually truly authentic person, a politician when it comes to social media? 
I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know um, off the top of my head, but I will say that the advice. I was thinking about this over the weekend. Like the advice I would give a candidate in terms of being more authentic would be the same advice I would give like one of my kids to be more popular in school. Right? <laughs> don't try so hard. Like just be yourself. Okay? Don't try so hard. And if you're not comfortable talking about yourself on Twitter, then don't talk about yourself on Twitter, right? Go to Instagram and take photos of what your life is like on the campaign trail. Like Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, has a beautiful Instagram of his life as a citizen of Los Angeles and what it shows, right? And to me, that shows like something about, you know, kind of who he is, how hard he's working, where he is, et cetera. It's not campaign stuff, it's just kind of his view of the city. He doesn't seem to be trying so hard. And if it's natural, it's natural. If it's not, it's not. But don't force it if it's not you because consultants want you to be on Twitter. With that standard, though, I think there are several candidates that are actually doing quite a good job. Trump may be a case study in that he gets a lot of engagement, but I wouldn't advise several of the, uh, all the other candidates to copy Trump. They've gotten themselves into trouble when they've tried to do that. Um, yeah. You know, they tried to show a more brash style on Twitter, and it ends up it look, looking silly right. and really hurting them. And so you do have Rubio engaging, you have Jeb engaging, you have Hillary's campaign quite um, active, Bernie's campaign quite active. I, I actually think they're using the media quite well, and whether it's fully themselves, I mean, it's, it doesn't come across as inauthentic, so I think that's a win. One of the challenges now is that there are so many social media platforms that you know, we have Facebook and Twitter, but then we have Snapchat and Instagram and Pinterest and everything. And how do you, each one kind of, each is different. And it becomes very hard, very time consuming for a candidate to be, be authentic on each of these platforms that they're sending their messages out through. And if you look, I, I don't mean to, I guess I'm picking on Hillary Clinton, but if you, if you look at Clinton's Facebook page and her Twitter feed, they're basically mirror images of themselves. As, and you know, if, if you do that through all the platforms, you start to look very, very manufactured. Um, but on the other hand, I, I sympathize with how hard it would be to be authentic on all these platforms all the time. You know, you die of authenticity eventually, I think. It's a lot of putting yourself out there for a normal person and a politician who are used to putting themselves out there. Um, up there in the white shirt. Okay. Hi, I'm Chris, and well, I'm a sophomore at the college. And with the rise of social media, it seems like there's just a lot more political information out there. But at the same time, you have the ability to self-select what information you get based on what pages you like and who you follow on Twitter and so forth. So I guess my question is, do you think that social media sort of increases people's exposures to different views and standpoints, or it further entrenches them in their own viewpoints? Nick, do you have, you've done some work on this. Yeah, I, I mean, and I talked a little bit about this before. I think in general, it leads to more entrenchment in their existing points of view because they, what happens is they, they seek information that is confirming rather than opposing to them. That, that's not true of everybody. And, and some people will use the opportunity to expose themselves to different views. But I think what, what we know about people pretty well is if you give them a huge amount of information, they'll select the stuff that res already resonates with what they, they're already thinking. Um, back down here. Yeah. I'm Victoria Budson, and I lead the Women in Public Policy program here at Harvard's Kennedy School. We've certainly seen that the rise of social media 
fundamentally enhances the campaigns of non-traditional candidates, the way Deval Patrick used it, the way President Obama has used it. One of the things that also happens to women candidates, and I run our political leadership training programs with the University for Women, is that female candidates and women who participate in the social media space, even though overrepresented in many of the platforms, also are much more likely to have incredibly aggressive shutdowns by other people participating in those venues. For those who also blog regularly, can get really sort of visceral attacks, and there's a lot of trolls who spend time doing those attacks. One, do you have advice for how candidates can most effectively handle that type of engagement? And two, what do you see as the future for campaigns and beyond of how these platforms are regulated so that we have less visceral engagement in a way that's deeply negative and diminishes discourse? I think the first question is definitely one for Mindy. Yeah, so um, that dynamic where there's a lot of vitriol and, and also um, really not just for candidates but, but even voters who participate on social media, I think it's a deterrent because people are so um, are attacked and, and really shut down. Like it's, it's, there's people who don't, who are, you know, it's almost as if they shouldn't be allowed to express their view. So if someone takes an opposing view, the way that they react to someone is that, you know, other people react and like, you're not allowed to have that view and discussion is really shut down. And that's unfortunate. And that really hinders the ability for it to be a platform for discourse. I'm actually more concerned about that than I am about it siphoning people off into their own camps. And I think part of why it does siphon people off into their own camps is because what is the reward for trying to express a view and having a discussion if you are gonna have that kind of response? It, it is worse for women um, because of the types of attacks that it can lead to. In terms of advice, um, you know, really you have two options. It's either you engage or you don't engage. And then if you decide to engage, do you acknowledge those types of commenters or not? I think engagement is always better for all the reasons that we're talking about today. If you say silent or absent, people are out there talking about you on social media anyway. You wanna be able to kind of, you wanna be able to, it's not so much control, but have participate in that conversation and be part of it. In terms of whether to engage those commentators, at this point, because the plat, you know, where the platforms don't limit and they really don't, you, ha you have to ignore it. And I see this happen all the time with many women candidates. In fact, it's some of the women who are really the best at being open online, posting every vote, doing the Facebook Q and A's, um, you know, especially the, the members of the house. Um, and they get those kinds of comments and I always wince when I see them, but, but it doesn't stop them from doing it. They continue to do it. Um, and, I, and I really do, do think that helps in terms of the image um, that their constituents have of them as someone who is open um, and, and some of those women, and this is on both sides, are really in swing districts. And I think the reason they continue to be successful is because people do see them as accessible. Would you mind repeating the second part of your question? Oh, well, the second part is, do you see in the future of social media a better sense of regulation on the platforms? Because what we definitely see in social media is a type of discourse, and particularly in gendered aspects, that are visceral comments that, for example, if they took place in a forum, that mic would be cut because they in no way contribute to the discourse, are outside the frame of what's considered reasonable dialogue, and in some cases would definitely be considered hate speech. And that there's, a, I mean, one of the benefits of the social media platform is that people can express their authentic selves, and there's a wide range of what that looks like in our political landscape. 
But do you see that as always sort of going on uncharted Wild West? Or do you think that over time there'll be some more mitigation in those systems to create a more effective dialogue? bit uh, at one of the platforms it's it's such a tough line because where where do you draw the line where do you cut it off what some people see as quite offensive um, others see as uh, appropriate and obviously this happens even in this is a big issue on college campuses in terms of what's allowed um, in debate and where those platforms tend to lean is to be as open as possible they there's always platform policy which is continually revisited where there are certain things that are absolutely unacceptable and if people register a complaint they can be taken down or that person can be warned that their account will be shut down every platform has those policies in place and um, you know within those companies there is there is really um, thoughtful debates that go on about where they draw those lines but they tend to lean towards being more open because it's part of the promise of the platforms that they'll, they'll be a platform for for open discussion my name my name is Ignacio I'm a sophomore at the college so every once in a while, a really bad tweet resurfaces and harms a politician. I was wondering what you thought is going to happen in the next 40 years when people who are running for office have hundreds of thousands, if not you know, so many tweets in their name, if that's gonna be any different, if the political landscape is gonna be any different, if people are actually gonna go back and look at all these tweets that people from my generation have been tweeting now in, in our age, and if that's gonna affect us in the future. Or Facebook photos. Or Facebook you know, or Instagram or any other social media. Yeah. yeah, what is that next generation of politicians <laughs> going to look like when we can see what they were like freshman year and not really caring what they put on the internet? We have to skip Memo a whole to generation. all of you. Um, I mean, do, do you think even some of the same things that we see now from politicians when we see things from their past resurface and news stories, um, do you think it will be as harmful down the road or will it pack the same punch or more or less one? John? I'm hopeful that it's put into the proper perspective over time. I mean, I remember the first time that um, there was an ongoing debate about Bill Clinton smoking marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. And now you have every candidate talking about all, a lot of the kind of things that they've done during the college life. So we've had more context over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. And I, suspect that will be the same. Um, I hope that's the same. It's so difficult now for, for somebody to run for public office in terms of opening themselves up to the history. So hopefully that folks will have kind of the proper con context over time. Yeah. I'm an optimist though. <laughs> yeah, social media has definitely impacted our sensitivities in that way, um, where something that would have been a gaffe and you know been a reason that someone might have to exit a race in the, in the, race in the past, um, there might, it might be a big deal, it becomes a, huge deal um, <laughs> in 24 hours over Twitter and Facebook, but then it goes away because there's so much else to cover. Right. The news cycle has just become so, so quick. Um, yes. Uh, sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Evan. I'm a senior in the college. By the way, I'm really enjoying this, so thank you for coming out. Um, <clears throat> when I think of the question, is social media ruining politics, I, I usually tend to think of one of two effects. Uh, the first one is that everything nowadays is political and becomes very political very quickly. Like one example I can think of is there's this uh, woman who tweeted a joke and then by the time she landed in South Africa, she had been fired, her address had been posted, she'd received death threats, she had to move. Um, the other one is the comments section. Um, 
And so the question that I have is just sort of two parts. The first one is, why do you think that this seems to pop up everywhere? And every explanation that people come up with all the time for maybe it was anonymity, then it was short form, they all seem to go away. Why is this always seem to be the case? And is it inevitable? Will it always be the case? Nick? Well, I, I think there are two things. One is just the scale of these platforms means that it's very easy to get enough people concerned or kind of or, or offended uh, that it kind of snowballs very easily. And, and for all the good things about social media, it is a platform for, it can be a platform for a mob mentality where people kind of react viscerally without thinking about it or without thinking about the, you know, without giving the, another person the benefit of the doubt often. And so it's, unfortunately, that's part of human nature. And when you create these kind, this kind of scale where every, anybody can say anything uh, about anything, it becomes very, very hard to avoid that kind of, kind of, at sometimes very unfair and very damaging dynamic. So. I have a sense it'll probably always be with us. Hi there. Uh, my name is Frankie Hill. I'm a freshman at the college. And I was wondering, you've talked a lot about how social media can be kind of bad for discourse uh, and talking about political issues. And I was wondering is if you have seen any like better ways to do it. Are there features that we could be implementing that would improve social media websites uh, to improve discourse on them. Uh, in your studies, have you encountered anything like that? I can. I have a um, an example or or two, and um, it, it, it's connected to the original point I made, which is you can use social media in any platform to start a conversation, but you're not going to create a policy paper on Twitter, right, or Facebook. You need to take it somewhere else, either offline or online. And I think there are some examples of, of starting a conversation in multiple places where then you find the people who really want to be there, right, who really want to have a voice, who have some perspective, and take it to kind of a more of a kind of a more of a closed space, right, where people can participate kind of like they participate in a letter to the editor. You have to say who you are, right? And then you can kind of try to work with other members of the community to solve a problem where it can be crowdsourced kind of within some kind of guidelines in terms of what the problem is and that only kind of respectful conversation can be a part of it. And that leads to tremendous results, right? We've done this dozens of times across the country. In the end of it, you have specific policies that are created kind of at the local level, sometimes with experts, sometimes with citizens, okay, that eventually get the attention of the governor, the senator, the mayor, the administrator, the particular program, and I think that's the way it can work. So again, I think we're, we're all agreeing that you can't have the most productive conversation 24 seven on social media, but it could start to be an invitation to invite people in to maybe a more corporate space based on what your goals and objectives are. So I think there's a lot of room to, um, to make it better and to build platforms or um, improve the existing platforms for discourse, and that maybe is a challenge to the students and others in this room uh, as something to work on. Um, it's something I worked on a bit last year with a platform called change.org. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but it's an open petition platform. And as we know, petition is the oldest form of uh, um, tool in our democracy to, um, to, to share your voice. 
And, but one thing that we found is it was incredibly, changed as an incredibly powerful platform and through people signing petitions and the, the collective action of sometimes millions of individuals, there was a lot of change happening. The things that people were wanting were happening. But we still had the same issue where it was very one way. Um, one way in, in the way that you wouldn't normally expect. You talk about politicians shouting at the public and it being one way. Um, in this case, it was a public shouting at decision makers, politicians, sometimes it's corporations, um, but not really giving the decision makers the headphones to actually listen in a productive way and engage in a dialogue. As, because sometimes um, people are clamoring for a particular change and they may not understand all the reasons why things are the way they are or why it is so difficult to change or what, how people could be working together with um, government or corporations, frankly, to institute the change. And so um, we actually created a new um, feature set of that platform to allow politicians to respond and start to engage in a dialogue, which has been used by you know, dozens of politicians at this point. I'm not saying that's the whole answer, um, but it really was a response to this, um, you know, to the disconnect, to the fact that what we see in social media right now is wholly insufficient for this kind of dialogue. I, I think that the easy part is to create the platforms that would allow deeper discourse. It's pretty easy to imagine them. The hard thing is to get the politicians to come and the public to come and actually spend a lot of time there. And I think this will be our last question for the evening. Thank you. I'm Rick. I'm an alum of the college and the ed school. And uh, I'd be interested in any or all talking about how is fundraising and how do you see it moving, uh, both by candidates and by third parties. Um, you know, think of Move On and, and others. And, you know, where is that going to go? Where is it? How is it affecting these campaigns nationally now? And where do you see that having an impact in the future? Thank you. Do you mean fundraising generally or just through social media and digital? Uh, through social media. I mean, how is, how is fundraising through social media, even email, Facebook, whatever, like Bernie Sanders and Barack, obviously, but everybody, and third parties as well. So. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's see. Why don't we each do a quick answer, kind of thoughts going forward. We'll start at the end. And sure. I, I, I think um, a lot of uh, those lessons were, um, I learned them from 2004 at Howard Dean before social media and Web 2.0 but the idea of empowering regular citizens to share you know, a couple of dollars here and there to participate. One of the best uses of that was actually to shut down folks who created negative comments on his blog. During, the, during that campaign, the organizers, Nico and Joe Trippi, would say, for every negative comment, I want our community to raise X dollars. Mm. So that was a way that they actually self-corrected that. And frankly, I, and, and, and take a look at what Lawrence Lessig is doing on the other side of this campus. He's using social media to organize his campaign, raise a lot of money, and try to raise awareness. It's also not surprising. He's the one that has the highest proportion of his tweets being responding to people, right? So he's working, he's talking to people, and he's raising a decent amount of money from small donors to get there. Uh, Mindy? Yeah. Well, I mean, the great promise of the internet was that it was going to kind of re-democratize the process. We've talked a lot today about some of the ways it has, but many of the ways it hasn't. Um, and one of the, and then, and with fundraising, uh, it's another one of those stories that has two sides. It definitely has, uh, in some regard. Um, you look at candidates, certainly Bernie Sanders right now, and the fact that he was able to raise almost as much as Hillary Clinton in the last quarter. Um, almost, you know, the great majority of that was from small dollar donors through social media and online. 
Um, you see that with some of the Republican candidates who are doing that as well. Even a, a certain candidate who's running right now, Marco Rubio, wouldn't be where he is today had he not done the same thing in his Senate primary against Charlie Crist, where he started in single digits running against a very entrenched incumbent um, and was able to do the same thing. That said, there's still an incredible influence over the system um, by major wealthy donors. Um, so there really is two sides to the story. I think that's actually one of the stories to really watch in this election cycle to see will it be that tipping point? Because even with Howard Dean, he was able to overperform what people expected, but he wasn't ultimately victorious. We've had Barack Obama was ultimately victorious. So there's really been a mixed story about those who are able to build that kind of movement behind them and raise the majority of their contributions online. And Nick, last I know word. nothing. I know absolutely nothing about fundraising. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, can we please give our awesome panelists a round of applause? Well done. And thank you, everyone, for coming very much. Thank you.